Welcome to the Speech Uncensored Podcast, your destination for nourishing and flourishing in the medical speech and language pathology field. Today's episode features Dr. Amanda Stead on the topic of end-of-life care and the speech-language pathologist. I'm so pleased to share the audio from the two-hour live ASHA CEU with SpeechTherapyPD.com. If you missed the live event, you can access the video recording plus slideshow with your SpeechTherapyPD.com basic or premium membership. Today's episode is the first half of a two-hour CEU, and in this episode, Dr. Stead discusses the importance of understanding grief and using counseling skills. She unpacks what to expect when working with those actively grieving and provides conversation starters and scripts that help you navigate difficult conversations. You're going to want to have a pen and a piece of paper nearby to take notes. Like I promise, it's really good, y'all. That's what I did. (laughs) My name is Leanne Porter. I'm the host of the Speech Uncensored podcast. And now let's meet Amanda. Well, hello, everyone. And Leanne, thank you so much for having me back again um, in this little bit different format. So my name is Amanda Stead, and I am an associate professor at Pacific University, which is outside of Portland, Oregon. And I specialize in neurodegenerative conditions, geriatrics, and end-of-life care. So I spend a great deal of time talking about everybody's most favorite and inspirational topics. So I'm really excited to actually share this information. And um, I'm such an advocate for the more you talk about it, the less weird it feels to talk about it. So um, when Leanne and I did the podcast, I think it brought up so many interesting conversations and I teach um, quite a bit about this topic. And after an hour, I was just like thirsting for the opportunity to dive deeper right into some of these topics. And one of the things that has always struck me about being an SLP thinking about end of life care is not a lot of explicit instruction, direction giving, or understanding has ever been provided to us about like what we should be doing or where we should be doing things, where our business is and not. And um, so, you know, it's folks like y'all who are like doing the CE opportunity or continuing education where we get a lot of our knowledge, but also, and I think to the benefit and detriment is that we're getting it in our workplaces. And I think the benefit of that is, you know, we all know like learning on the job is like the way we really learn how to do a lot of our work. But the problem is, is that if you work in a setting that has a culture or a common practice that maybe isn't doing some of the things we would like you to do or best practice, certainly it's hard to learn the right way to do things. So we sort of move through our careers thinking, well, this is the way it is because Mm -hmm. this is the way it's been going in my setting. And so this is just a way I think to sort of reset Mm -hmm. Um, sort of where we are and then give some really, um, I think, like tangible ideas for you for when you literally go back to work, wherever that is. Perfect. So I think when we start about thinking, you know, and I hate with this sort of like shock and awe entry, but thinking about the way um, I think we aspirationally imagine things happen in our country and then also the way things are actually happening in our country. And 
You know, right now, the average life expectancy in um, the United States, say this current moment we're having right now, is about 78 and a half years. And that is a substantial increase in the last 100 years of how long we've lived. I think horrifying and interesting is that the last two or three years, that number has actually been coming down from closer to 80. And the reason is, is because we've seen a pretty substantial uptick in substance abuse overdose deaths and a pretty substantial uptick in suicide across the country. And so that's actually bringing our overall sort of life expectancy down. Um, so not in the way we think about life expectancy in geriatrics, but a great loss of people in younger and middle ages from those causes. And we think about 51 years used to be how long we lived a century ago. And already in the last 30, 40 years, we've come up another eight to 10. And there is all this incredible information. So like what, how did that happen, right? Mm -hmm. Well, it happened because we have managed to either cure, prevent, or manage most of the things that used to kill us. Mm -hmm. And so if you look 100 years ago, the things that used to kill us, things like tuberculosis and pneumonia, you know, very common sort of things are now largely gone or very controllable. And the things that really are um, impacting life expectancy now, you know, the leading cause of death in America is heart disease. Heart disease, although it has some genetic components, has a ton of lifestyle components. And, you know, maybe we're not the healthiest country in the world. I'm just going to float that out there. You know, other things going down, um, you know, cancer is very high on the list, um, lung disease, and then also the sixth leading cause of death in the United States is Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we, we can talk about like what that sort of looks like, but we're having a lot of these sort of consequences of lifestyle and genetics meeting this relationship often for older patients. And I certainly have found having the conversation about end of life care alongside of geriatrics tends to be a little bit more palatable for people. Although, you know, we know that um, this is really a lifespan issue and there are caveats for each of the population. So we also know that a tremendous amount of healthcare dollars are spent in end of life care. And we have gone through a pretty big shift in the last 50 years. So, you know, palliative and hospice care didn't used to be a thing. Mm -hmm. And Medicare wasn't a thing, right? And so as we've seen the spooling up of Medicare and then the inclusion and sort of increasing of Medicare's hospice benefit, we've seen a lot of healthcare dollars shift towards uh, this end of life care moment. And I saw a statistic and I'm not gonna be able to tell you where I saw it, but it was something like at one point we were spending a third of all lifetime healthcare dollars within the last two months of our life. And there are lots of reasons for that, reasons about the way you know um, the fee-for-service medical model is in the United States and the types of interventions people were engaging in. And, you know, there are incredible books like Being Mortal written about this, about the curative, you know, the attempt to cure things that are largely not curable and how that spends money. But what we've seen in the last decade is that there's been a shift in understanding culturally about hospice. Mm -hmm. And that although there is still a tremendous amount of people who 
haven't had perfect experience with hospice, hospice is becoming more of a um, important role in the end of life journey and a less, I think, rejected sort of version of what it is. Because when you used to say hospice, people would be like, oh, you're going to let my person die. And that's really not what hospice is about. You know, hospice is about the acknowledgement of a terminal condition and the full support of family and medical benefits within that time period. But still, what we're seeing in this country is about 30% of families are impoverished by the death of a family member. That's and wild. That's like really stunning. That's a uh, large percentage. It's a lot. I have a question. Um, are they becoming impoverished from the hospital fees? Is that including like maybe um, burial services as well? A whole, you know, it's, it's this whole sort of like end of life process. So like once someone is, um, you know, we'll talk a little bit about like preactive dying or like starting to engage in that sort of downslide. And I think as we think of it as lay people, it's this combination of incredible medical expenses, um, tons of like caregiver resources and medical equipment, you know, even people who have hospitals mm. at home. And then it's, um, you know, the burial industry in the United States is a for-profit industry. And, you know, it's a lot, it's a lot of money. And many families, as you know, I'm sure you're paying attention to all the economic things happening right now, you know, don't have extra money. And to all of a sudden have bills for tens of thousands of dollars is really complicated. And um, all of this to say, you know, I think sort of the setup is, and, you know, I always hate to, you know, paint our system as a little bit damaged, but, you know, we're all working in the same system here. Mm -hmm. um, this is the context in which we find ourselves having this conversation. So I'm really just big Yes, the, the caregiver costs are so tremendous, right? So the loss of income for primary caregivers, as someone mentioned in the panel. I, I think this idea, the context in which you are about to have these conversations and use these tools is incredibly fraught with political and financial holes and tons of barriers to sort of do the work that we wish you to do, not only because it is the right work from the human perspective, but financially, it turns out it would also benefit the system and the families. And so I think we're trying to make this slow sort of institutional change towards better end-of-life practices in the United States. So we have to start with a little bit of like horror and shock and awe in order to feel like really motivated to do this next part. <laughs> Sorry, it's a weird place to start. So... You know, when folks are reaching the end of life, I think one thing that is really striking about this moment is that the, the myriad of symptoms that families are going through and their patients are going through, so many of them track back to you as a professional. And so knowing as much as we know about language, communication, cognition, feeding, swallowing, I am just like fascinated at our absence in a lot of these conversations and teams. And so I just wanted to remind you about all the things happening to our families during this moment 
and why is our business? So, you know, the major symptoms, like mentioned in the poll, is fatigue and people are tired. And if we just take tiredness alone and there were no other symptoms, we know that physical fatigue impacts your ability to eat, to participate in conversation, to use any protocols for swallowing if you have dysphagia, to make choices in terms of, uh, you know, like what you want to have. You know you are not your best self when you're tired. So it just that player makes it part of our business. But then we see just issues of confusion and agitation, this restlessness and inability to stay put. This has a huge impact on our families. And we'll talk sort of about like why people don't always want to be at home. But then we see this withdrawal from social participation and um, previously held roles within the family, which is complicated. So like someone mentioned, just the shift in breadwinning or financial status, people having to step out of the work field, people not being able to fix meals for themselves or ADLs or IADLs. We see increased sleep, which on one hand seems like a like a, a relief for families. But remember, often this comes with it, a shift in sleep patterns. So then we see increased restlessness overnight and in the evening, which is incredibly challenging for families. This decrease in food and liquid. And I don't know how many of you are currently working with patients near the end of life or patients with a significant um, dementia or something like that, but there is some complicated feelings about what decreased intake looks like. Oh yeah. And, you know, I'm like trying to dip my toe in the water here, but it's, you know, people have really different viewpoints about what we should be doing to support an overall decrease in intake in calories. If that's like normal or if it's not normal or if people need support, if so, what kind of support, what does that look like? And we also see changes in breathing patterns. So breathing changes is the most universally most challenging and upsetting symptom for families as people move into end of life processes. The, what feels like that apneic breathing where people are like gasping for air, whether they're conscious or not, it, that is the symptom in which people who have been through long-term sort of hospice benefits or you know, sort of slower dying process, it's the breathing that really sticks with people. Mm-hmm. So again, as an expert of respiration, how can we help our families understand what's happening? I, I think, you know, I like a phrase, like an end of life care phrase, like none of this is unexpected because somehow you don't want to be the anomaly, you know, all the time. Like none of this is unexpected. A lot of families experience this. It's my experience that when people start having difficulty breathing, that this is a really particularly stressful moment for families. I would love to talk with you about what that's going to look like so we can think about how to prepare. I think you just are really speaking. Um, I'm gonna, when I speak a little bit more about the, the counseling piece, you know, that communication Um, and you know, see, like, I'm even like, I'm on a video when I'm like doing this thing with my chest, but I think the idea is that, 
your body language and your voice and tone carries so much more information than your words. And I can say, well, you know, um, a lot of, uh, you know, when, when the breathing issues start, that's when families, uh, you know, really start to spiral. And if you said that to me, I'd be like, excuse me, you know, and I think so much of it is rooted that they see you as their ally. And that rapport building is not about your information. And this is, this is where I think we make a mistake. And, you know, Luderman, who's like the grandfather of counseling, would, would tell you, you know, you feel comfortable in information giving because that's where, that's where you have a leg up, right? Like you're the expert. No one can challenge you in your supremacy of your own field's knowledge. So we love to get there. And when people start getting all a little shaky emotionally, you know, there's a range of how clinicians function in that space when their patients or families are really having a moment. But all the literature is very clear. It's the authenticity of your interaction that changes outcomes and changes rapport. You know, you can be the best damn clinician in the world, but if your patients don't like you, your outcomes will be more poor than an average clinician with killer rapport. And Counseling is based in authenticity. And if you cannot sit in the mud, you cannot have end of life conversations. I'm just positive about that because it really takes that like, um, you know, chaplains call it that circle of love. And I know that sounds like so, (laughs) so like woo, but that's what it is. It's like your body and your energy has to put off true empathetic caring an understanding of the situation. And then only when it's necessary, do you meet them with the information they need at that moment. And where we screw up is we're like, here's the 37 symptoms coming for you. <laughs> Let me know if you have any questions. And you know, then we sort of duck out. Instead of using our just like prowess in our knowledge and your understanding of the patient to be like, here's the three I think are probably actually coming. I'm only going to talk about these three. Hmm. I'm going to start here. And then simple phrases like, you know, what questions can I answer for you? Instead of, do you have questions? Like just flipping that language. But I love the phrases. None of this is unexpected. I wrote that down. Yeah, because in end of life care and in in medical care, it's like, you really don't want to be the anomaly. (laughs) You know, like you want to know your medical providers like totally have this Mm -hmm. and that they're there to support you and they understand it. And so I I think that's a really good place to start. And then we can start to step in and say, you know, okay, like what is my role here with this family? And, you know, Leanne, I don't know if you feel like this is a good time to sort of talk about that piece or you have more questions about that other I I think you answered my question really well. Um, I just realized that we're like 26 minutes in and we're still on the first page. So I need to take a much bigger back seat so we can get through this material that you've prepared. Oh my goodness. I could, I could do like five hours on counseling. That that would make (laughs) me really happy. So, um, you know, you are already the master of your job. So I I don't need to tell you what an SLP does or what we do in certain settings, but I I just want to empower you to like claim your space 
and as it relates to end-of-life care. So during the end of life, people have a hard time communicating for a myriad of reasons, you know? And so this is your time to help care partners learn better tools, support communication, use external aids and AAC, think of more accessibility patches around our folks. That's your business. And, you know, what we'll talk about is that patients absolutely need to communicate as long as humanly possible, both for autonomy and decision-making, but for quality of life and for these sort of, you know, final conversations that they're going to have. Feeding and swallowing, of course, that's your business. And mercifully, this is the one space that, you know, everybody's totally aware that's your business. So thank goodness, you know, we're not fighting for our scope everywhere, but we do have a lot of encroachment here. And it's really important that you take your place at that table kindly and appropriately just about like, let's talk about the relationship between comfort, care, feeding, swallowing. You know, if you are on your deathbed and you want a cheeseburger, you really going to tell someone no, you know, and I think also having those conversations with ourselves, we also know that once patients can't swallow, that's a really overt sign that they're probably moving into active dying. That's something we need to communicate. Thinking about adherence to recommendations, you think adherence to recommendations are bad for the rest of our patients. When patients are an end of life, they're like, ah, no. Like families are just great. And this is all in the context of, again, when things are bad, when families are grieving, when people are in pain, what's the thing we go to? Yeah, we want to feed them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We you want to feed them. Food. Yeah. yeah. I mean, how much food have y'all eaten over the last couple months? I mean, I'm just wondering. Like, <laughs> like this idea, like food is comfort. And so you say, okay. My job is to help you figure out, your family figure out how we provide comfort through food still. Mm -hmm. Not to take that away from them, but to figure out to do it in a way that makes sense for a family. Um, It is no surprise that people don't want modified diets at the end of life. Yeah. I mean, surprise, right? Uh And um, we know that because of what's happening to them, like, this adherence to anything is really complicated. So any strategy you can create for a family that doesn't involve um, much work or much adherence, it is like more passive and less active. This is a great benefit. So we can work with our families to help formulate treatment recommendations, to help communicate with other members of the team, to empower our patients to communicate their wants and needs and wishes at the end of their life. Mm -hmm. and look at all that space we're going to claim, right? So your scope of practice is like booming at the end of life. You have tools for both feeding and communication. Turns out that's literally the only two things people want with the exception of not being in pain, talking about pain management. So there you are. So we got to get in there, right? Mm -hmm. So the other problem we're really going to face is not only have a lot of our um, clinicians not been well-trained or had a lot of positive experiences in working in end-of-life care or with patients who are dying, but a lot of, um, there's literally a brand new article that just came out in ASHA about the lack of counseling training Mm -hmm. in primary programs. 
And, you know, counseling is certainly something that like you need practice with, but, um, and I will be transparent that I teach a counseling class. And so what I would say is that you're already doing all the things I would teach you to do in counseling, but you might be doing them in the wrong order because the way society has trained you to do them is the exact opposite of what we actually should be doing. And it turns out that humans are just extraordinarily egocentric creatures and it's really hard to sort of do that, <laughs> you know, and I think that's a superhuman answer instead of being like, no, I'm not. I never think about myself in this interaction. I was like, of course you do. Like I'm giving a talk, staring into a camera. Am I like worried about that? Yes. Like I'm still thinking about what's happening. Right. So when we think about counseling, you have to couch it in both skills, which we'll talk about, but these goals that our patients have, that's what we're talking to them about. We're talking about their disease state, which is now has often reached terminal, right? We're talking about them, about the relationship between intervention, quality of life and quantity of life. We're talking to them about more functionality, not necessarily living longer. We're talking to them about suffering. We're talking to them about maintenance. We're talking about a review and empowering them to have a review of their life, to think about, quote unquote, the good death. And this is the type of conversation. So again, when we say, hey, if, you know, if you're not comfortable in the weeds, this is not the place for you to be because the stuff that's said to you is so profoundly human. Mm. And you need to let that be with you so that you can respond appropriately. And the way we counsel in end-of-life care, I mean, I think we should counsel like this all the time, but particularly, you have to think about better questions. And, you know, I put a couple examples, and these are from wonderful materials that have been created out in the world. You know, like the Conversation Project is a nonprofit who's developed really incredible starter kits for families to have conversations. And one of their questions I'm just in love with, it says, what matters to me at the end of life is. And that's a really good way to think about it. Instead of being like, what would you like to eat? How are you communicating? Like, no one knows how to answer. Like, what matters to you? Is it being able to call your children who live across the country? Is it being able to eat that damn cheeseburger? <laughs> is it, you know, like, what really is it? Mm -hmm. Because I, I don't think that it takes a lot of stretch to be like, it turns out 99% of the things that you care about now wouldn't matter. Mm -hmm. And so what are the things that do and help families sort, Right. Is there something particular you want to talk about? Now, here's a really good example. Like I come from a family where we have a lot of dementia in our family, right? And so when you think about end-of-life care, you know, many members of my family have these like caveats because they want to make sure they talk about things that we have experienced in our own families. So maybe you've been in a family experience where like you felt like a feeding situation was not good. Or there was a pain management situation that wasn't good. And these are the things we want to talk about. And often, this particular concern, this is based in your own experience. So you can't come in as a clinician and being like, I'm wondering if you've thought about pain management. They're like, why? Why are you saying that? Is it going to hurt? You know, and then you freak them out. Instead of being like, assuming that they're going to lead with their experience and just saying, 
you know, is there something particular you want to talk about? And families will tell you the thing that is on their mind. You know, like some family members are really worried about continence. Some family members are super worried about wound care, you know, and that gives you a chance to tailor your information giving and your support to what they actually need instead of just like, like the dump of information, you know, they don't need that. They can't hear you anyways. That was a really professional way to talk about that. Right. But very relatable. (laughs) Cause sometimes that's how I feel. I deliver information. I just kind of word vomit everything out. And then I'm like, any questions? No. Okay. Bye. Yeah. And that's not efficient, effective or useful. Well, and if you, you know, again, like going back to the research, we know that our patients really only store about 20% of what you say. Mm -hmm. What if they stored the wrong 20%? Mm-hmm. Like, is what you said relevant? Like, and I think really, it's not dumbing it down. It's making it digestible. If it's so important for you to tell them, don't you want them to hear it? Mm-hmm. You know, and here's some, I put some examples in your outline of things you should definitely not say. Things like, I appreciate very I mean, I know that I know that's crazy. And a lot of these are things like doctors would say and you know, ways we're thinking about the conversation. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but <clears throat> excuse me, because we're such a libaceous society, you know, we, we love a good Sue. I think people are really trying to protect themselves. And sometimes that like fear of non-compliance, particularly around feeding. I think can lead us to places where we're feeling really defensive and our language is feeling a little aggressive. And so this is just, again, your permission to be like, oh, is there another way I can say that? But, you know, when someone says, do you want us to do everything possible? Like you can feel it, just me saying it. You're like, that is a weird way to say that, right? Yeah, well, my... Of course I want you to do everything possible. Of course I want you to care for but that doesn't mean going maybe to extreme medical interventions where my priority might be their comfort and pain management, maybe not a desperate need to explore every single option available weighing risks, you know? So like, that's way too broad. That's way too open. When it found, it, it almost feels like a little condescending to me. Like, oh, right. like if you, you didn't say yes, then I wouldn't. <laughs> Right. Like they, they know that's not what you want. Like, no, not everything. You know, everyone's like, no, not everything. And so it feels like a weird place to even start the conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, will you agree to discontinue care? Now, what that's rooted in is a very powerful conversation about intervention that really needs to be had. You know, for a lot of our families, the withdrawal of certain types of medical support certainly mean, you know, that someone will die. But when you say, will you agree to do this? What you've said is I've already decided this is right. And you're in the way. And it feels like that's, that's a positionality. You do not have a position in someone's end of life journey. And I, you know, I said that all like, you know, like cranky. But the thing is, is like, that is such a formative moment in a family's existence. Your personal opinions about how someone should die or what choice they should make are frankly not relevant. Your position is one of information giving. 
The worst thing you could do is try to convince a family to do what you personally would do because you are not that family. Now, how you absolve yourself from feeling like they made a quote bad decision is that we are confident that we have explained fully the choices, the outcomes, the possibilities. And we believe in autonomy so much, like it is in our blood that we allow our families to make choices we would not make for ourselves. That is what autonomy is. Autonomy is saying like, I value your ability to make a decision. But when a family wants to make a decision that isn't the decision you make, we often are like, oh, I'm not doing a good job. They clearly didn't hear me. Or now you start campaigning. Mm -hmm. And campaigning is really dangerous. And there can be definitely, you know, the movement towards, um, we'll talk about this in documentation, you know, people have strong feelings about things like ventilation Mm -hmm. and resuscitation. And they're allowed to have strong feelings about them. But you can't project your strong feelings onto a family who's literally making a decision about ventilation. Like, that's not appropriate. And frankly, it's dangerous, you know? Like, it's really, it's too important. And it also really, I think, is arrogant of us to believe that we are, you know, we have so much, like, cultural humility to not understand that families would choose different things for different reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and I think we want to walk that line, which is why we're going to help people do documentation, which is what we're going to talk about. You know, so how do we avoid that nightmare? Well, I'll help. But, you know, what the, this idea of like, don't use the word suffer, like you shouldn't project that word. And so a doctor being like, I'm going to make sure he won't suffer. You're like, ugh. Does that mean he would? You know, like there are just certain types of words you shouldn't use. Aggressive therapy. What does that mean? You know, it's just the wrong way to say it. Where instead, we say things about improving quality of life, Mm -hmm. making things meaningful, Mm -hmm. maintaining independence, treating symptoms, right? Ensure that your loved one gets the treatment they want. Right. So supporting that autonomy, thinking about how we can support you in your wish to go home, stay at home, go to the beach one last time, whatever it is like that. That's the way, because what families hear you say that is you're not saying your person is not getting better. Your person is dying. You're saying it in this like loving and supportive way. And what you're also saying when you say things like, Let's discuss how we can keep you at home, like what that's going to look like. What you're saying is you're still important to me and you deserve the full benefit of our expertise and knowledge. And this is, I think, where we have really screwed up because We know so much, like we just know so much and about so many things are important. And instead, what our families are hearing us and other medical providers say is like, they don't get care anymore. Mm -hmm. Like they've lost and goodbye. 
-hmm. You know, instead of being like, we're just in a new part of the journey, here we go, next round. Like, here we go, I'm with you the whole way. And that's what gets us to the good death. And that is a good use of healthcare dollars. And I, I will just advocate to that, like over and over and over. The moment is too important in the iteration of a family for it not to be. And it turns out that spending that quality of life and prevention money saves a ton of money in like really adverse outcomes and hospital remittance. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you can't make the human argument, make the financial one, you know, and mm -hmm. I, I know that sounds like cold, but it is totally true. Sometimes you just have to appeal to your audience. <laughs> and I mean, if yeah, your audience like, is driven by finances, then use what you've got. Totally. I think it is a great, a great solution to work within your institution to be like, I can save you money. <laughs> Let's you know, up and going. Like, like that is, that's just smart moves right there, you know? So here's my counseling bootstrap 1000. So here are the rules. And um, I often tell this when I teach counseling, I'm going to give you a very specific set of rules because then that way you can always follow it. The problem that we engage in when we do counseling work is we give information. Mm -hmm. And that's actually not what people need. And it actually feels really dismissive. So when someone tells you something heavy before you say anything, before anything of any substance, because it turns out they usually don't even want your opinion in the first place, yeah. is you have to say a validation. So if someone says you know, I'm just really afraid that my dad's going to be in pain. Because this is the thing that people say to us when we go into spaces where I'm just really afraid he's starving. I've heard that phrase. Mm. Are they going to starve to death? And you're like, whoa, loaded, right? I'm really afraid that they're not going to get care. And you know, they're often couched in these like afraid statements. I've also heard statements that it's like, this is so unfair. Mm. Or why is this happening to me? Right? Well, one, you should expect to hear those type of statements because families are like experiencing a significant life event. So the first thing out of your mouth, and what I would say is before you do validation, like count to five. So if someone is like, I'm just really afraid he's going to starve. I'm so sorry. You know, so the reason we sort of wait a minute is because one, you often don't need to say anything. And two, they're not done talking. But heavy conversations have a lot of silence. And nothing you're going to say is going to fix this, remember. The only person that can fix the emotional component is them. How you support them in the fixing is giving them space to turn it over so that they can come to their own personal understanding of what's happening so they can move through it, right? And your job is not to fix the grief. The grief is there for a reason. And it's an important human emotion. And so your job should not be to cheer up someone when someone is dying. Yeah. That's a totally normal thing. So they're going to say something heavy. You're going to like count to five. And then you're going to do a validation. That sounds really hard. I'm so sorry. 
I'm here with you. Sounds like you really care. Sounds like you're really worried. That sounds difficult. You know, and the best form of validation, in my opinion, is like a no word. And, you know, it depends on our settings, but like a hand on the shoulder. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, and like that true exuding from your personal body that you heard them and you've received that and that you're sitting in that moment with them and you're not running away from it, right? So you really have to control your body and your face. So when we are listening to people, we're often listening to respond and not listening to hear. And now we all know this because we do this every day in our own personal lives. But you really need to hear them and try to turn off your inner chatter. And what that does, one, is it softens your whole body and your affect. And two, it actually clears like the cognitive space for you to hear what the real problem is. Because very rarely are humans transparent and telling you what the real problem is. And I, I always joke when I teach counseling, it's like cookie crumbs. Like people aren't going to tell you right out, but they're going to like drop a little crumb and see if you pick it up. Mm. And now if they drop the crumb and you weren't really listening and you don't pick it up, they'll be like, see, and they'll just move on and they're not going to bring it up again. That, that was their one opening. Cause remember when people are in pain, they both want to talk about it and don't. Like they know they need to and they want to, but they also really don't, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the other greatest gift we can give patients who are like in big moments and families that are in big moments is like the gift of our silence. Now, if ever a discipline has perhaps had to work on our ability to be silent, it may be the speech pathologist. And I say that out of deep love for my profession. But, you know, when I go to ASHA and I go to my state convention, it's like a cacophony Mm -hmm. of noise because we love a good chit chat and we love to fill space and we don't like to be quiet. And so I think, again, really like channeling the silence um, so that you can truly hear and do work and you're not filling the space because when you try to fill the space, what you'll fill it with is information. And that's often not what families need. And they often know the answer anyways. So once you've moved through that and it turns out you finally have to say something that like has substance to it, what you're not going to say is information. So we're still not even to that place where you're going to give them information about your scope of practice and your solutions and your hope. What you're going to do is you're going to reflect what they said. Back to them. So if someone says, I'm really afraid he's going to starve. And that that'll be really painful. And you sat there and you just said, I'm so sorry. And then they say something like, you know, what if he's just hungry and then he thinks we're not feeding him? And then you say, I, well, life, you know, it can be quite painful to eat food. You know, like instead of like doing that, you might just have to repeat that because I don't know on anybody else's screen, but it just went gappy right oh, there. Oh, no. Oh, I was like, right when she gives us our like line of what to say. So it was right after, it, it was when you were reflecting it back. Okay. So 
I love when I'm doing like a good heartfelt example and I lose my internet. So I said, okay, so patient says something, I'm afraid they're going to starve. I say, I'm so sorry. And the patient says, you know, what if, what if he thinks we're not feeding him or we don't want to give him food? Mm-hmm. And now instead of like giving the information about like, actually, like this is what digestion is like at the end of life and it can be quite disruptive and blah, blah, blah. You know, instead of doing that, you just say, so you're worried he'll think you're not caring for him because that's really what they said, you know, that you wouldn't give them food. You're worried that he'll be in pain. And that gives someone the opportunity to reconsider what they said to you. And they might say, well, I'm not worried he, he thinks we won't care, but I'm just worried he, he'll think we're letting him die. And say, so you're afraid your father won't understand what's happening and the decisions that we're making. Well, yeah, you know, it gives people a chance to reconsider because sometimes what happens is people say things that they don't mean because it turns out that's what we do when we're angry and upset and full of grief is you'll be like, you know, I just think, you know, um, I'm trying to think of a good example. Like families will say something like, you know, I don't know if you're just going to like pull out the breathing tube, then like, why don't we just do it now and get it over with? You'd be like, so you feel like the breathing tube should come out sooner than later. Well, no, not really. It's just that blah, 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 you know, and then they like, because they're just complaining Mm -hmm. because they're upset. And like when you hear your own words spit back at your face, it's really an opportunity to reconsider what you said. And it's really important when we talk about counseling, like people say things that aren't true all the time and they're a little bit true but they're not all the way true because it turns out you get to have complex emotions and competing emotions. Like when I've lost members of my family, I have felt simultaneously crushed and relieved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, there's so much shame in the idea of saying someone might be relieved that someone has died. And that is such a human experience and creating space for someone to say that to you helps them move through that healing journey. That is what bereavement is about. That is what grief is about. Grief isn't about being like, oh, see that shame? Shame and guilt turns out to be the two worst emotions. Just being like, stuffing it on down because that stuff's going to be there for another decade, you know? And it doesn't go away. It just hangs out until it's really inconvenient. So the last thing you can really do is like, summarize and paraphrase what families are talking about, especially if they're like going and going and going and going and going and giving you information. And only after you have the full lay of the land, should you say something like, I'm just really here to help your family figure out the best way to provide comfort feeding to your dad. I want to work with you to help meet those goals and just really be like, yeah, I hear you. Like, I got it. Let's do the work, you know, instead of being like burdened and feeling threatened by their misunderstanding of your role, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. um, people are not at their best, nor should they be. We shouldn't expect them to be like so grateful and understanding of our roles. They're like, so in the weeds, mm-hmm. we know that, um, 
you know, for one, when you work with families and patients at the end of life, it turns out that there is a tremendous emotional and spiritual toll and this huge process families are going through. We have this really interesting process, and you should definitely look into this if you're a nerdy person, but this idea of anticipatory grief. And I would bet money all of you have done this before, but you're grieving something that hasn't even happened. Oh, yeah. For sure. Yeah, right? definitely. 100%. Yeah. And, you're, and it's, it's like a preview. You know, it's like, it's like your brain and your body are trying to turn it over a little bit. And there, there's actually some speculation. It's like, it's trying to like manage a chunk of it. So when you get the real part, you've done some of the work already, but you know, families are grieving death before people die, you know? And so you, that's the space you're entering into. And people are really like in the process of losing and they're going through all of these really big and ugly emotions, you know, all the ones that we are afraid to really say out loud and to deal with. And grief is super subjective. And we really have misunderstood that grief means like me losing it and crying and like shutting myself in my room. That actually isn't what grief looks like. That's like what one person's grief looks like. You know, your grief might look like planting 300 tulips nice you know or like your grief might look like uh making a ton of bread or your grief might look like going out to the bar and getting really drunk and that's really complicated because we think grief looks like crying Mm -hmm. and grief looks like a lot of things and so sometimes we misunderstand people's actions And then we judge them and they feel that projection. And um, instead of being like, oh, they're they're grieving, right? And some of us, you know, and I know people are experiencing this now. It's like the way people process is really different. Like some people are staying busy. Some people are the opposite. You know, the pendulum has swung. Some people are just having like a total, like human, uplifted, inspirational moment. Other people are like as dark as they've ever been, you know, it's, we're going through a shared experience a thousand different ways. And there's no way to really anticipate what that's going to look like. The wonderful and incredible thing is that healing most of the time, and this is, this is grief, not complicated grief. Everybody grieves and people get better from grief, period. When you heal from grief, your body literally changes. Like you literally heal physical parts of your body and feel like rejuvenation in your body. Grief is a physical symptom as much as it is an emotional one. We think about a new understanding of our experiences. And I think where people misunderstand counseling is they think we need to get you to be okay with or forgive or be happy about or find happiness again. That's not what it's about because some things are never going to be okay. Some experiences are not forgivable. Some moments you will never be able to find a bright side to, nor should you. Instead, what it's really about is like learning to live alongside and have increased resilience and understanding of something so that it doesn't pull you back down all the time. That doesn't mean you're happy 
that someone died. And I think this, like, we are, we constantly try to counsel people to happy and like end of life care is the one place where you can be like, wow, that really doesn't make any sense. Right. Mm-hmm. And the, you know, if I, if I were to strike any words from the English language, it would be at least, well, at least, well, at least he didn't have to go on a ventilator. Well, at least the cancer didn't spread. Well, at least he didn't wake up from that thing. Well, at least he got to see his first grandchild born. Well, at least they got to, I mean, really? Mm-hmm. Like what a whole, and you know it, and people have said this to you. You know, you've been in a horrible spot. Like you get laid off from a job and you're like, well, at least you paid off that car note last month. And you're like, I'm going to punch you in the face. <laughs> you know, uh, at least is invalidating. And it's not that you were like so egocentric to believe that it is true. In fact, someone has probably had it worse than you. That's not what you're saying. Like you're allowed to be upset about your own thing. It's your own lived experience. And when someone says at least, it means it's not really that bad, right? Because it could have been worse. And you're like, I know that. And you're a jerk. It's really (laughs) invalidating. And it doesn't actually help you move towards a place of happiness when someone says at least or tries to cheer you up, all it does is it cues someone who's grieving to shut their mouth and stuff it down. Mm. It, like that's not a person they can process with or move through. And what that really means is that person does not move through their grief as quickly as they could, which means in fact, by being like, ooh, cheer up, you have in fact delayed their happiness. Now that should feel like a good reason to get rid of it. You actually did the opposite of your intention. And I would be willing to bet if you all would self-monitor yourself the next week, how many times someone complains to you about something and your first instinct is to provide a silver lining, an upshot, a solution. People hate solutions. Like when you're complaining, you don't want a solution. You know, you're like, oh, you know, I made this bread and it didn't rise. You don't want someone to be like, well, you know, was your yeast expired? You want them to be like, that sucks. You know, like, that's all you want. You don't want a solution, you know? So I think thinking about that. And so your physical experience and emotional experience of grief, you should not expect to see that from other people. What you should expect is that it's there somewhere and it needs space. And so all you're doing is trying to create space because that's how you provide good care. That's how we provide care is by allowing space to understand what the real problem is. Mm-hmm. Now, what were you going to say? Oh, no, I'm just a hundred percent on board. I'm loving all of it. I think one of my favorite of the many takeaways is that cheering up delays the grief process. And I, that's, that's really stuck with, me. that's super important because it is, it's instinctual to be like, Oh, let me comfort you. Let me be nice to you. Let me like lift you up. But it's doing the exact opposite. It's delaying that grieving process. We're hindering their progress. We're a roadblock, an obstacle now. So let's stop being cheerful, people. (laughs) Be sad. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, shared understanding of pain, acceptance of pain is actually the most healing Mm -hmm. thing we can do for people. And why are you trying to cheer someone up when their family member is dying or they're dying? That's a weird thing to do anyways. You know, like, just don't.
Thanks for listening to another edition of the Speech Uncensored podcast. Show notes with links to resources mentioned in the episode are posted on speechuncensored.com. I'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a thoughtful review on Apple Podcasts. And finally, I'd like to leave you with my wish for you to nourish your mind so that your practice can flourish. 